Well, good morning once again, and um, would ask you to turn to John's Gospel, chapter 6. Although I warn you, we won't get far in John 6. Now, here's why. Here's why. John 6 is a pivotal chapter in John's Gospel for a lot of reasons. But before we get into it, I wanted to take a couple of steps back and view it in the context of John's entire gospel, which is very, context is supremely important. A lot of Christians, they read the word hastily, don't look at the context, yank ver verses out of context and apply them wrongly, and that's a, a big problem in the church today. Let me just start off by saying this. John's gospel, as we've already talked about, is highly organized, highly much different from the synoptic gospels, which means similar, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John's is completely different uh, in the way it is organized especially. He built it around seven miracles that led to seven discourses that culminated in seven I am statements. Now the phrase I am is the name of God. As first expressed in Exodus chapter 3 verses 13 and 14, when God told Moses to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go, Moses said, Lord, I don't even know your name. Whom shall I tell Pharaoh is sending me? God said, you tell him I am is sending you. And so for the first time in Scripture, God revealed himself as the great I am. Listen, not the great I was or the great I will be. The great I am. Inherent in his name is the idea of God being eternal and that he dwells in the eternal present tense. Everything with regard to God is going on right now. Everything. The fall in the Garden of Eden, he sees, is going on right now, all the way to the culmination and the eternal state at the end of Revelation. It's all happening in the realm of God uh, right now. He is outside of time, and therefore he can see the end from the beginning and tell us in his word things that are going to happen. That when they come to pass, we know that he is God and the Bible is his word. But this sacred name of God, I am, is really four letters in the Hebrew. And it's known as a tetragrammaton, which means four letters. And the letters are YHWH. Now, no one knows for sure <laughs> the true pronunciation of YHWH because the ancient Hebrew language used no actual vowels. Okay? On top of that, the Jewish people would never pronounce the name of God because they believed their lips were too profane to utter his holy name. And so when they would read the scriptures and they came to YHWH, they simply bowed their head and said, the name. And then they go on. After a while, they forgot the correct pronunciation. Now, they would probably disagree with that. But really, after centuries of not pronouncing the name, technically... No Jew really knew the exact pronunciation of the name of God. And uh, however, I think Yahweh is probably correct, although most Gentile Christians usually pronounce it Jehovah. And that's fine, okay? Um, the word, though, actually, actually is a verb. The word Jehovah, Yahweh, is actually a verb in the Hebrew. It means to become or to be, to be or to become. The idea being that God wants to be 
or to become to us whatever we need. Which is why the word Jehovah is often coupled with a noun in the Old Testament. And so as we read the Old Testament, we see the name of God, and I've hyphenated these because it's God's name followed by kind of a description of what he wants to be to all of us. So we read Jehovah Shalom. Shalom means peace, right? God wants to become your peace. Jireh means provision, provider. Jehovah Jireh means I, God wants to become your provider. Victory in the Hebrew is Nisi. So we read Jehovah Nisi, which means I want to become your victory over whatever it is that has you bound, whatever battle you're fighting with, alcohol, drugs, whatever. I want to become your victory. And I'll give you one more. There's others. Jehovah Rohi. Rohi is shepherd. I want to become your shepherd. Something that Jesus presented very clearly in John 10 when he said, I'm the good shepherd. Right? However, guys, the greatest of all, the greatest of all is Jehovah Shua. The Lord wants to become your salvation. The Greek name Jesus actually comes from the Hebrew, Hebrew Jehovah Shua. Often it's pronounced Yehoshua or a contraction, uh, Yeshua, Yeshua. God wants to become whatever we need. Well, the thing we need most, whether people realize it or not, is salvation. And so God the Son, second person of the Trinity, came down from heaven, became a man, and died in our place in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Yeshua, whose name means the Lord, has become your salvation. In John's Gospel, Jesus called himself, I am, the name of God, coupled with seven different nouns expressing what he desires to become to people. Now that's, you know, beside his very name, which means I want to become your, your salvation, Right? But in John's Gospel, uh, he coupled, Jesus uh, coupled the name I am God with seven different nouns. Now, think of it as a name coupled with a description. Okay, so uh, think of uh, Phil Ballmeyer, my name, the pastor, a description of what I am, right? We see this all throughout John's Gospel. In fact, he built his Gospel around these seven I am statements. I'll hyphenate them so you realize it's a name followed by a description. Jesus said, I am hyphen, the bread of life, John 6.35. He said, I am, name of God, the light of the world, John 8.12. He said, I am hyphen, the door, John 10, verse 9. He said, I am hyphen, the good shepherd, John 10, verse 11. He said, I am hyphen. The resurrection and the life, John eleven twenty five, I am hyphen, the way, the truth, and the life, John fourteen verse six, and then finally I am hyphen, the vine, John fifteen verse five. Now, guys, each of these statements is a declaration of divinity, because inherent in each statement is the name of God. Each of these statements is a declaration by Jesus of his divinity, and don't think this was lost on his enemies. They understood he was claiming to be God in human form, which is why they tried to stone him 
on several occasions. John 10, verses 31 to 33, after Jesus taught uh, something about himself where he claimed to be God, then the Jews, the Jews, uh, the Jewish leadership, what the word Jews means in John's gospel, then the Jewish leadership took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of these works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, the Greek says constantly and continually, make yourself God. And so, guys, as we study John 6, understand that the whole chapter is built around the feeding of the 5,000. Now, we've talked about this. There were 5,000 men plus women and children, upwards of 20,000 people. But the whole, but the, most of John 6 is built around, well, all of it, because he includes that miracle. All of John 6 is built around the feeding of the 5,000 miracle and contains a very important discourse, a very important discourse culminating and climaxing with his declaration of divinity, I am, hyphen, the bread of life. Now, I just want to back up and look at this a little bit chronologically because I think uh, um, context is very important, all right? But from a chronological standpoint, in John chapter 6, we have a small glimpse of the middle part of Jesus' ministry. Uh, actually, chapter 6 encompasses roughly two years of Jesus' life, which is uh, really all John gives us in this gospel with regard to these two middle years of Jesus' ministry. Uh, obviously, the other gospel writers give us much more a much more detailed look uh, at the uh, events surrounding these middle years. But you remember that John is very selective in his gospel presentation. Uh, this is especially true with the miracles that John uh, chose to include in his gospel. He chose seven miracles very specifically, okay, um, primarily to communicate something important. Remember, he said at the end of his gospel, and we're not left to guess what his theme was. He tells us, uh, John 20, verses 30 and 31, it says, And truly Jesus did many other signs, miracles, in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Guys, as we've already said, John's gospel is organized in such a way that he skips over large chunks of Jesus' ministry to focus uh, on only the events that are germane to the theme of his gospel, which is to prove that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, so that people might believe put their faith in him and receive eternal life. That's his whole purpose for writing his gospel. Now, the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle, as we have said, uh, of Jesus that is recorded in all four gospels. Now, I don't know about anybody else, but it says to me, to me, that the Holy Spirit chose to record this miracle in all four gospels. He repeated it to us all four times uh, through, all, through four of the gospels. Because he was trying to reinforce something in our thinking. And that, I believe that was that study this miracle and the surrounding events that took place because of it. Because there is a larger lesson to be learned than just Jesus showing compassion on a bunch of hungry people in that, on that day and feeding them with physical food. 
I believe there's a larger lesson to be learned. Unfortunately, we're not left to guess what it might be because later in the chapter, the Lord Jesus tells us what that spiritual lesson is and why he communicated, uh, what he was trying to communicate to us through this miracle. You see, on the next day, and it comes in and later on in John 6, but the next day, they went into the synagogue of Capernaum, and there he gave a sermon. And he stated clearly in that sermon the purpose of the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. It really was an illustration of himself, a physical situation, miracle, that then pointed to something about him that he wanted to communicate. And the theme of that ser sermon was, as I just said, Jesus, the bread of life. And the message was clear, that Jesus is the true manna, the spiritual bread that came down from heaven, that if a person would eat, quote-unquote, really the idea is to believe in, anyone who would believe in Jesus as the bread of heaven would live forever. Now listen, that message wasn't received as enthusiastically by the multitudes as was the bread Jesus provided for them to eat the day before that filled their stomachs. Predictably, the people were willing to receive the physical bread, but were reluctant to receive the spiritual bread, Jesus himself. Only you happy to receive physical bread. Uh, much more reluctant to receive the spiritual bread. Jesus himself, who came down from heaven to satisfy their spiritual hunger, uh, including and especially their need for salvation. People today are only too willing to let God meet their physical needs. But not really, many are not willing to receive him for their spiritual need, which is salvation. You know, people will tolerate God, they'll even... Uh, go to church and, uh, and uh, praise God, I guess, through the music, uh, as long as God lets them live their lives the way they want. They can find a church that will preach to them that you can have God and still keep living the way you're living. Uh, many people are open to that. In fact, this morning, many churches that preach that message are full because there are people, and the Bible says God made all of us with a God-shaped void in our heart, and so, there's, you know, Satan knows. People are not going to be atheistic or agnostic for the most part. That's why he does his best work through religion. Because he knows that inherently they are religious, man's religious at his, at his core or her core. And, um, and people will tolerate God and even church as long as they are allowed to live their life the way they want. I mean, talk about repentance and changing your life living a holy life and obedience to God, that's not a message that people are that thrilled about today. But Jesus is the bread of life, guys, the only one who can satisfy the spiritual hunger in a person's heart. Now, I have divided verses 22 through 71 of John 6 this way. All right, so I, I've, I've divided up now uh, the major part. First part dealt with the feeding of the 5,000. I have now divided up the remaining verses uh, of John 6, and here's how it breaks down. I'll, I'll just read them to you. And uh, first of all, the physical preoccupation of the multitudes. Secondly, the divine declaration of the Savior. The carnal, number three, the carnal condemnation of the Jewish leaders. And number four, the strategic, listen, the strategic separation of the true disciples from the false. So 
this morning we'll just, this morning we're just going to start with the first one, and uh, we're we you know first one is the physical preoccupation of the multitudes, and that covers verses 22 to 34. But let me just say this: when I say the physical preoccupation of the multitudes, what I mean is that this great multitude of people, again upwards of 20,000, listen, were more interested in their physical stomachs than they were in their in their eternal souls. That's a real problem for a lot of folks today. Okay, I mean, it's definitely true of the vast majority of unbelievers in the world. But it's also true of a good number of believers in Christ as well. This is what the Bible calls being carnally minded. Carnally minded. Now, I want to spend the rest of our time this morning looking at this as an introduction to the rest of the chapter. Because you need to understand that this idea of being carnally minded, focused on the physical, preoccupied with, you know, the things that pertain to this life, you know, food and water and shelter. And that is a big problem. And Jesus Christ, all the time when he worked a miracle, he met people on the level of the physical, because that's where they lived. But then tried to elevate their thinking to the level of the spirit, which is what they needed. And so because that theme undergirds the entire rest of John 6, I want to focus on it. First of all, looking at the carnally-minded unbeliever. Turn to John 8. The carnally-minded unbeliever. I'm going to read to you out of the NLT 2nd edition, Romans 8, starting with verse 5. Paul said, those who are dominated by their sinful nature, that would be their fallen sinful nature, which they inherited from Adam, called the flesh. Those who are dominated by the flesh think about sinful things. But those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. But letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws and it never will. That's why those who are still under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. But you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit of God if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to Him at all. Now listen to me. From verses 5 through 8 of Romans 8, Paul is comparing believers with unbelievers. He is not talking about carnal Christians at all. He will in other places. We'll get to that in a moment. If you don't know that, you're going to read Romans 8, and many have, and assume he's talking about carnal Christians who are going to lose their salvation and go to hell. The truth being presented in Romans 8 is a positional truth, not a practical truth. Our Christian life is lived in both realms. Positionally, we are in Christ, as Christians, we are in Christ, holy, blameless, sinless, bound for heaven. As Believers living in these fallen bodies still, we're going to blow it. We're not perfect. We're not blameless as far as, you know, things we do. We are guilty of different things and all. So when you read Romans 8, do not read it 
as if Paul is talking about carnal Christians. He's not. Okay? When he talks about the mind, understand that it's different from the brain. The brain is a part of our physical man, whereas the mind is the soul or the consciousness of a person, which is non-physical. When Paul talks about the mind, he's not talking about the ability of the brain to think or reason. He is talking about the mind in the sense of, listen, the focus or preoccupation of one's life. When Paul talks about the mind in Romans 8, he's talking about the focus or the preoccupation of one's life. To be carnally minded speaks of someone who is dominated by and preoccupied with the things that pertain to their body appetites. Those things that are under the control of their fallen nature. It's what Paul called the lust of the flesh. Flesh being another word for our fallen nature. To be carnally minded speaks of somebody who is dominated by their fleshly desires. Their mind is consumed with satisfying their body appetites. Okay, This person is controlled by their fallen nature, guys, because they are unsaved. That's the point Paul's making. To be spiritually minded speaks of someone who is dominated by and preoccupied with the things of the Spirit of God. This speaks of a person who was born again and has the nature of God and the Spirit of God. And that's what happens when the Spirit of God moves in at the moment of salvation. He gives to you instantly the nature of God. Okay? The nature of God. Uh, now you have two natures. Remember Paul talked about this in Galatians 5? Before we were saved, um, we had one nature, a fallen nature, which we inherited from Adam. Right? And as such... Our fallen nature controlled our thinking. It dominated our lives, right? Once we got saved, the Spirit of God moved in and brought the nature of God. We were now born again of the Spirit. And now we have two natures. And as Paul said, they're constantly warring with each other for who's going to have dominance of our lives, right? The flesh wars against the Spirit, and the Spirit wars against the flesh. And these two are, are in constant opposition to each other so that we don't always do the things we want to do, right? We want to live for God, want to obey God. But sometimes we let the flesh get the best of us. It rises up, and we do some, some things that we know are wrong. We fall into various sins and so on. I just want you to know that when a person is born again, the Spirit of God, the nature of God comes within them, and now, in general, they are controlled by their new nature in the Holy Spirit. Unbelievers continually set their minds on the things of the flesh. And that would be material possessions, physical pleasures like, you know, partying, uh, recreation, getting high, entertainment, sex, all that stuff. That's what dominates the minds of unbelievers primarily. Now, that doesn't mean they never go to church. That doesn't mean that they may not sometimes volunteer in the local soup kitchen doesn't mean around christmas time they can't work with uh children's organizations to uh, help kids have toys for christmas it simply means that their soul their consciousness is basically under the control of their fallen nature because they only have a fallen nature they don't have the spirit of god in them or a new nature okay one author put it well he said and i quote these people are completely consumed and dominated in their thinking by the things that gratify their fleshly desires. 
There's no desire or thought of future rewards or future glory. They live for the moment and for the pleasure they can get now. They are hedonists and materialists uh, who have no desire for spiritual things except to give God lip service at the appropriate times, end quote. Now, many of these folks call themselves Christians. Why? Because they go to church, okay? Uh, as we as just said a moment ago, uh, right now all across America there are people in church who are religious unbelievers. They are religious unbelievers. And they believe it's good to go to church because I don't want God mad at me. Good people go to church, and if I offer enough works, he'll be happy with me and I can earn heaven. So that's why a lot of unbelievers who are religious go to church. Many of them call themselves Christians. And yet they still reason from a very fleshly standpoint. I've heard things like, I can be a Christian and still live with my boyfriend or girlfriend. I mean, after all, we love each other. A piece of paper is not going to prove our love for each other. You know, that kind of thing. Or, you know, I've heard young people say, I can, I can read the Bible and still get high. God made pot. It's natural. Well, so is arsenic. You wouldn't want to be consuming that, would you? Or a hemlock. So I heard a young guy on YouTube or something confess that all the years he was in the church's worship team, he was high on cocaine. But that's okay. I love the Lord. What's wrong getting high a little bit? You know, it makes me, enhances my worship. Or, you know, people say I can love God and go to church and yet still cheat in my exams or lie about the product I'm selling because, you know, God understands. He, he knows I have to do these things to get ahead. Boy, you know, people can justify things all, all over the place. The point is, by feeling this way, it's betraying that you don't really have a spiritual mind. You have a carnal mind. Possibly, and maybe even probably, the mind of an unbeliever. And the reason Paul is drawing a comparison between believers and unbelievers in Romans chapter 8 is because it is the conclusion of a section that actually runs from chapter 1 through chapter 8, which deals with these all-important questions, okay, all-consuming questions. How does a person get saved? How does a person get saved? How do I know that I'm saved once I am saved? And once I get saved, is that salvation permanent or can it be lost? You can read the end of Romans 8 to find the answer to that question. But in Romans 8, he is presenting, Paul, presenting some criteria by which a person can test the legitimacy of their salvation. The bottom line being, I'll let you study that in your own. The bottom line being, listen to me now, you'll know you're genuinely saved if there's a change in the way you think about life which has produced a change in the way you live your life. That's the bottom line. Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8. Paul said, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a person sows, that he or she is also going to reap. For if they sow to the flesh, in other words, if they live to satisfy their fleshly desires, well, of the flesh, they're going to reap corruption. Hell. But he who sows to the Spirit, lives for God now, will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 10. 
Paul said, do you not know that the unrighteous, talking about unbelievers now, will not inherit the kingdom of God? He said, do not be deceived. A lot of people have deceived themselves. He said, don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Listen, and such were some of you. He didn't say, and such did some of you. As Christians, we can fall into any one of these sins. And when you do, the devil can make you think, well, see, right here in the Bible, you, you committed adultery, fornication. You're going to hell. No, Paul was not talking about individual sins here. He's talking about a way of life. In other words, the fruit of an unbelieving life. John made it very clear, 1 John chapter 3, if you're really born of the Spirit, if you're really a child of God, you cannot listen you cannot live habitually in sin. Yes, we can all still sin, and we do. But anybody who claims to be a child of God and goes on living in unrepentant, guilt-free sin is fooling themselves to think they are a child of God on their way to heaven. And that's what Paul is saying. Again, in 1 Corinthians 6, like in Romans 8, he's trying to contrast believers with unbelievers. Such were some of you. That was your nature back then. You're not like that anymore. You've been sanctified, washed, justified. You're children of God now. You know, Spurgeon said it well. He said, the grace that does not change my life will not save my soul. In other words, any so-called salvation, quote-unquote, that doesn't have a changed life to go along with it, well, that's because there hasn't been a change of soul in other words, the Spirit of God is not inside that person. And anyone think, who thinks they can live an unchanged life and still consider themselves to be a Christian, as Paul said, you are fooling yourself. And you know what? Wise up now while there's still time to repent. Because if you wait till you stand before the Lord Jesus, it's too late to change. Can't repent then. Now listen, it is possible to be a Christian and still be carnal. That's the second point I want to bring up this morning. The carnally-minded believer. We looked at the carnally-minded unbeliever. How about the carnally-minded believer? Paul, in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14 through chapter 3, verse 1, Paul divided the world into these three categories. You ready? The natural man, the spiritual man, and then the carnal man. Let me break those down a little bit. The natural man is a term, guys, that speaks of someone who has been born into this world through the natural process, as we all were, right? But who has not been born again through the Spirit. Read John 3. 1 Corinthians 2.14 But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him or her. So listen, before we got saved, we didn't have the Holy Spirit inside of us right? We were natural men and women. In other words, only born physically. We weren't born again spiritually, okay? And anyone who is a natural man or woman, they look at us and they can't believe. They think we are the ultimate fools. Because here we are living for God, you know? 
They don't even believe in God, many of them. Here you're living for God, you know. They ask us, you know, how many, how much time do you spend in church every week? Oh, I go you know, Monday night to prayer. I go Wednesday night to Bible study. I go Sunday morning. Uh, sometimes I even go, you know, another day if there's a special event. Are you out of your mind, they tell you? Are you crazy? How much do you give to God every, uh, every week for your offering? You, you tell them. They, they, they can't get their mind around. How you, you're not partying anymore? You're not sleeping around? No. Uh, I don't have a heart to do that anymore. God's delivered me from it. Really? They, they just can't. You are an enigma. Now, nobody likes to think they're off base. So they got to think, I'm normal and you're goofy. <laughs> I'm not goofy. Nobody wants to say I'm goofy. Everyone else has to be goofy. Until God convicts them and works on them and eventually... Many of them get saved, and then, of course, then they're on the side where we are, right? And they understand what it was like to have that natural mindset. But listen, the word natural in verse 14 in the Greek is sukaikos. And it speaks of the soulish person, a person who lives to satisfy their bodily appetites, just like an animal. God made us a triune being. Body, soul, and spirit, just like God is a triune being. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Man communed with God, was connected to God in the realm of the spirit, spirit to spirit. Garden of Eden, Adam sinned. His spirit died, Eve as well. Every one of us born of Adam, physically, we have been born a two-dimensional being. We have a body, we have a consciousness, but we have no spirit. It's dead. As such, we can't commune with God. We can, we can People pray to him who aren't believers, but they can't commune with him. In our fallen state, we were like animals in the sense that animals are two-dimensional creatures as well. They have a body and a consciousness. They're alive. And what do animals live for? Well, they certainly don't live to worship God or to serve God or to commune with God. They live for food, drink, sex, Shelter, I mean, that's, where animal, that's survival, right? But once we gave our heart to Christ, the Spirit of God came in. Our, our spirit was born again. We were again connected to God, spirit to spirit. And that was a whole new life, a whole new level of existence. Paul contrasts the natural man with the spiritual man, pneumatikos, pneuma. The word for spirit in the Greek, ikos, to be controlled by, dominated by. He talks about this spiritual man in uh, 1 Corinthians 2.15. Guys, the spiritual man or woman is someone who has been born of the spirit. Someone who is spiritually minded, whose mind is dominated, listen, with the word of God, the will of God, and doing the work of God. This is what Paul calls having the mind of Christ in verse 16. And then in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1, Paul talks about the third category of humanity. He talks about the carnal man, which refers, listen, to a carnal Christian. Now, many believe that so-called carnal Christians, quote-unquote, are not really Christians at all. I've heard people say this. Uh, there is no such thing as carnal Christians. Those are unbelievers, they say. Well, um, 
but Paul addresses them as brethren. He says that the church of Corinth had received all the gifts of the Holy Spirit. God doesn't give gifts of the Holy Spirit to unbelievers. Uh, he said they were babes in Christ. Look, the word carnal is the Greek word sarkaikos. Sarks, the word for flesh, could be the physical body, but it also could be a reference to our fallen nature. And that's exactly how Paul uses it here in 1 Corinthians uh, 2 and 3. Um, the Greek word means to be dominated by the inclinations of the old fallen nature, the carnal man. To be dominated by the inclinations of the old fallen nature. Look, Paul was telling these people, the Corinthians, that after four or five years of being Christians, um, they have barely, barely come through the door of salvation. They haven't gone hardly anywhere. They've just gotten into the door of salvation. Uh, as someone put it, they're living their spiritual lives on the bottom rung of the ladder, so to speak. He's saying, in effect, to the Corinthians and to a lot of others in the body of Christ, you have put yourself in a position where your relationship with God is literally profiting you nothing apart from being saved. It's what Alan Redpath, you ever want to read somebody that's not going to beat around the bush, read some Alan Redpath. He said, the carnal Christian is a child of God, born again and on his way to heaven, but he is traveling third class. Look, Paul had ministered in Corinth for 18 months. And yet when he left, he considered them still babes in their faith. And then a few years later, when he wrote 1 Corinthians back to them, at that time, the time of his epistle, he says, even now you're still carnal in verse 3. Hey, they had no excuse, guys. No excuse. Paul the Apostle had planted that church. Paul the Apostle fed them with good spiritual food, not the junk food of man's wisdom, like we see in so many churches today, which are very man-centered, feelings-oriented. You know, uh, The Word of God is given lip service to, but many times it's really psychology and these otherworldly uh, uh, you know, wisdom of man that's really exalted because that really is going to help people, not the Bible. That's how a lot of pastors think today. I believe the Word of God is living and powerful. I believe it is the only thing energized by the Holy Spirit that can radically transform a life. That's me, and I know most of you. But, but these folks had no excuse. Paul planted them, Paul fed them, and they didn't grow up. Why? Because they cho chose not to grow up. Guys, we can't live our Christian lives um, thinking that growth is going to be automatic. You know? A lot of Christians are living their Christian lives on autopilot and expecting God to do all the work. Like they don't have to just, just because they exist and are Christians. That's all they need. God's going to do the rest. Because of it, we see a lot of spiritual babies in the body of Christ. Let me just contrast briefly. Physical babies with spiritual babies, okay? I mean, physical babies can't feed themselves, right? Especially not anything like meat. Well, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, I, I fed you with what? Milk. Milk. I couldn't give you anything stronger. I couldn't give you the meat of the word, uh, deep doctrine, because you just, you, you couldn't handle it because you chose not to handle it. Physical babies are totally self-centered, 
Moms, you've experienced this, right? Physical babies are totally self-centered. They don't care about anyone else. And if they can't have their way, can't have what they want, they scream and throw a tantrum. I've seen a lot of Christians like this over the years. When God doesn't let them have what they want, they kick and scream, and God doesn't love me, he's not good, and I want nothing to do with him, you know, blah, blah, you know, wah, 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 you know. Well, here, have a bottle. Go calm down. I could go on for a while, but look. Um, look, physical babies constantly make messes, Right? of various kinds that others have to clean up. Welcome to my world. <laughs> now look, if you're talking about a physical baby, these things are expected. We don't expect a baby to do anything but these things. Okay, They need to be taken care of. They need to be cleaned up after, and so on. But as a parent, you wouldn't tolerate that kind of behavior from your 15 or 20-year-old, would you? Except unless they had some kind of, were mentally challenged in some way. Then we, that, we understand that. But in the church today, so many tolerate this kind of childish, ridiculous nonsense that does more to divide and distract us away from what God really has for us than a unified church filled with the Spirit, serving one Lord for one purpose, in one Spirit, for the glory of God. The church's time today is being sapped, taking care of all of these carnal, self-focused people. Why does the church put up with it? Because these folks often give a lot of money, and I don't want to step on their toes, or you fill in the blank. I want you to turn to James chapter 1 as we wind this down. Because James actually puts his finger on the difference between mature believers and, and carnal believers. Not that he even says it directly, but it's definitely implied. James chapter 1, starting with verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect, the idea is mature, and complete, lacking nothing. Guys, right up front, James presents the difference between spiritual and carnal believers. Here it is. It comes down to how they see trials and how they receive trials. At the core is how each sees this life. Carnal Christians look at life from Earth's perspective and view their Christianity as a vehicle through which God is going to bless them. Didn't Paul talk about these folks in 1 Timothy 6? Something that godliness, something that think that being a Christian is a means of what? Gain. I'm a Christian because I was promised a lot of goodies. You know? That guy on TV I sent 50 bucks to, he promised me, or she, that if I became a Christian, boy, was God going to bless me. As I'm waiting for the goodies, you know. God is a divine vending machine. You put the money in, pull the handle, and out come the goodies.
These folks believe God exists to make them happy and bless them with all kinds of material treasures because they are all about laying up for themselves treasures on earth. In contrast, mature spirit-filled Christians see life from an eternal perspective and view their Christian life as a way to lay up for themselves treasures in heaven by taking up their cross, denying themselves, and living for the glory of God while here on this earth. Guys, the first group tends to see trials as a satanic plot to destroy their earthly happiness. This, this is true, right? Those folks involved, now there there's developed whole ministries, whole philosophies of ministries, whole doctrines, which are designed to appeal to the carnal mind. In fact, Paul said the closer we got to Christ's return, one of the things that would characterize that we were getting close is that people in the church would no longer tolerate sound doctrine from God's word, but would gather to themselves teachers who would tickle their ears telling them what their sinful flesh desires. We're seeing it, right? So now you got a whole group of people, a lot of them belong to the uh, Word of Faith movement, uh, who don't see trials as trials from God. They see any adversity, any problem, uh, you know, any, anything like that, well, that's an attack of the devil. Because, see, God only wants good for us. And this is bad. Okay? I mean, God, this, this is not from God. Why? Because it's not blessing me. And because God only wants to bless his kids, anything that brings adversity my way or heartache or pain, that's of the devil. And I need to rebuke the devil. Right? I need to bind the devil. Because when I verbally bind the devil, then the blessings of God will start to flow again. Because it's the devil. The devil's trying to take away my, my blessings. First group sees trials as a satanic plot um, that need to be rebuked and so on. Whereas the second group, spirit-filled Christians, see trials as being necessary, listen, for growth and spiritual development a part of God's plan to better equip them for the work that the Lord has for them in this life. Now James wants to replace carnality with maturity in the lives of his readers. And so he is trying to get them to see, not easy today, he's trying to get them to see that their difficult circumstances are actually a positive thing a blessing from God to grow their faith and better prepare them and equip them for the rigors of ministry, which is what life is really all about, serving the Lord once you're saved. Now getting back to John 6 as we close. This multitude that Jesus fed with physical food the day before was primarily, I'm convinced, made up of unbelievers. Now listen, there might have been a few truly saved people sprinkled in. But the whole lot of them were carnally minded. We know this because of how the Lord himself addresses their desire to be near him. And they, next morning, uh, after they had been fed the food and were glutted and fell asleep, like after a hearty Thanksgiving meal, next morning woke up, hey, I'm hungry. Maybe Jesus will make some bacon and eggs. Let's, where's Jesus? Oh, there's the boat. It ran around and found Jesus and his disciples. John 6, 26, Jesus answered them, and answered them and said, Most assuredly, 
I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the miracles which pointed you to me as Messiah and Savior. You only seek me because you saw the miracles, but because, uh, not because you saw the miracles and came to me as, you know, accepted me as your Savior, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. You see, the reason I brought all that up with James, James is trying to elevate the thinking of his readers from the carnal to the spiritual. Folks, this is in essence what ministry is really all about, especially pastoral ministry. It's all about trying to get people, and ourselves included, thinking more on the level of the spirit and less on the level of our physical fleshly needs. Not that those are evil. You need to eat, need a place to sleep, roof over your head, need clothes. Jesus was supremely concerned about physical needs. That's why he met needs, physical needs all over the place, but then never left it there. He used the opportunity after they had, look, the way we feel is, look, if we're going to minister to homeless people that are hungry, let's feed them. A person with a hungry stomach is not going to want to listen to spiritual truth about how much God loves them. So we'll, we're doing what Jesus did. We go out there, we feed them a nice meal. And after their stomachs are satisfied now, we give them the gospel. Let me tell you what your real need is. I mean, you could come to me, and if I had the resources, I could give you bread, food every day of your life. till you die, you still go to hell. What you need is to understand your greatest need is not physical, it's spiritual. Let me tell you about the bread of life, because he's the one you need to partake of. And so Jesus is going to use this interactive sermon, interactive because he was questions and answers, to try to elevate their thinking and perception of life from the physical to the spiritual. Now, let me just set this up for next time. Next Sunday, I have a special message prepared about what I've called the new beginning, looking at the new thing I believe God wants to do in the coming year. The week after that, we'll get back in John 6. And let me just set it up quickly. We're, we're done. But I want to just set up the next section, John 6, 22 through verse 40, um, by saying it's built around three questions that the multitudes asked Jesus. Verse 25, Rabbi, when did you come here? Verse 28, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And then verse 30, a two-part question that looks like two questions, but is one. What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Now, let me just end by saying, if you're here this morning and you're thinking, you know, I've never received Christ like he's talking about. That's where everything begins. And so come on up so we can pray with you and give you a Bible. That's where it all begins. If, but if you're sitting there thinking, look, um, I think I might really be saved. But I think I'm more carnally minded than I am spiritually minded. And uh, how can I change that? Especially for this new year. Okay? Well, then keep these scriptures in mind. And I'm sure you can come up with many of your own. Uh, these are the ones that popped into my head as I was thinking about this. Keep these scriptures in mind and pray every day that God will give you the grace to put them into practice in your daily life. Okay, here they are. James 4.8, draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Again, guys, you can't live your Christian life on autopilot 
You can't just assume you're going to grow simply by being a Christian and not putting any effort in. You need church, Bible study, Christian fellowship, being serving the Lord. Draw near to God, He will draw near to you. Colossians 3.2, set your mind on things above and not on things on the earth. Let that thinking dominate your mind. Number three, Matthew 6.33, Jesus said, seek first. The word means supreme. Seek first in the sense of supremely. God's, God's kingdom is supreme over any kingdom of man, any material blessings or possessions of man. The kingdom of God is superior above all that because it, it's eternal. Seek first the kingdom of God. In Matthew 6.20, Seek to lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, not on the earth. If that is your mindset going into the new year and you pray constantly, fervently, that God will begin to make that a reality, He will. I'll just leave you with a little from my heart just may our precious lord give us the grace to be spiritually minded in the coming new year and beyond that we would have the mind of christ in all we do that we would say to ourselves i'm tired of being half-hearted i love god with half my heart the world with the other half i'm tired of being a carnal christian i'm tired of of living between Egypt and Canaan. I, I don't want to die in the spiritual wilderness. I want to enter the promised land of God's blessings, uh, the fullness of His Spirit, and so on. May God give us the grace to have that heart, because if we do, I believe He will bring us into that higher level of uh, relationship with Him this coming year. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank you, Lord, for all that you have given us in your word, all things that pertain to life and godliness. And Father, we pray that in this coming year you would do a new thing in our church in general, but in our lives in particular. That, Lord, we would stop riding the fence, trying to have the best of both worlds. And that, Lord, you'll give us a holy passion to be all in for you and to go all out in service to you. Lord, send the fire of your spirit to fall on us, to, to burn up the chaff of carnality, compromise, apathy, and complacency. Replace it, Lord, with a holy passion for you, for your word, to see souls saved and you glorified. Father, we thank you. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.